Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Another version of Bill Roden on Sports, Rose Pod. Here in, uh, I'm here actually. I'm here. I'm here in studio at an undisclosed location at Lincoln Center uh, with uh, my great co-host. And we really got a very uh, a hell of a lineup today. Kind of heavy on attorneys, I must say. So we kind of getting past our quota of, <laughs> of, of attorneys. But uh, uh, anyway, here with the great Jamal Murphy. Murph, what's up, what's Bill? Up? Good to see you. It's all good. All good. Hot. Summertime. Oh, man. In New York. I know. It's hot, man. It is hot. Yeah, but but a, don't complain. No, I'm not. Because it'll go down to 50 tomorrow. You never know. That's right. No, I'm not complaining at all. And then the great Nabate Isles. How you fresh, doing? You know we got to give you a fresh from uh, what I understand from my sources, a tremendous, tremendous wedding. Yes, yes, sir. Sunday it was beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. yes, that was great, man. Well, congratulations. Uh, thank you, thank you. We'll pull it for you. Thank you. Even yes. though we weren't there, Jamal. I don't know. Were you, were you there? No, I was not. <laughs> I saw. I saw great pictures though. Uh, okay. looked, I just want to make sure. Nice. You know, I, I, <laughs> Air, Air, you and Air talking. About, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ashley, and then we're here. <laughs> hey, man, no, but you got snow, Bill. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you. Hey, <laughs> won't be the first time. <laughs> won't be the last. But uh, no, we're there in spirit, my brother. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yes. Thank yeah. You. you said you actually feel feel different, right? I do. Yes, it's it's wonderful. Great, great feeling, and yeah, just in bliss right now. Cool. So, All wow. right. Wow, that, that's very good. <laughs> I, like, I like that. That's so. incredible. I mean, that's really good. Did you feel like that when you got married? Of course, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's so funny. Still, though, still yeah. feel like that. Yeah, I still do. Still feel like that. <laughs> All right, and uh, our special guest, our special guest uh, coming back for a return visit, is the uh, the great Ashlyn Johnson, who is a founder, president of the Inclusion Playbook, uh, which is a sports justice project that empowers sports leaders and transforms their lives. Is that? Yeah. yeah. the The goal of what we do is uh, we know that sports transform both individuals and communities, so. We want to give people the resources they need uh, to do to make the transformations they want. Oh, cool! Uh, uh, Ashley was on our podcast a couple weeks. She also specializes in like sports, student athletes, labor stuff, which we're going to hit a little later on mm -hmm. with um, our guest, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, Don uh, Jackson. That's why I'd be cool about let people know. <laughs> and also, yet another special guest is our wonderful producer, Aaron Matthewson, who normally uh, we keep in the control room, but we'll also, but she will let her out for her last segment about uh, what do we call the segment? Uh, trip and check. Trip and check. But because um, she actually, you know, she actually suggested uh, that since this is uh, the end of Pride Month, that it would be great. Uh, for us to do a segment since Ashley was in town and all that. So we thought, well, let's have Aaron come and help drive the segment since, you know. Uh, so anyway, welcome, uh, Aaron. Thank Glad you're here. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Yeah. So, yes. 
So, so Ash, why don't you tell us why you're in New York? This, you said this is Pride Month, um, but why, why were you in New York City? Yeah, uh, it's not just uh, the end of Pride Month, but it's also World Pride is in New York, and it's the 50th anniversary of uh, the Stonewall Riots, which sparked the uh, the Pride movement in the in the U.S. Um, so they have a theme called Pride Through Generations. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Airbnb wanted to uh, kind of create programs that uh, kind of show you how Pride has moved and rippled through generations, and sports was a great vehicle to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had uh, Jason Collins, who who arguably like started the uh, the the big sports LGBT um, movement, um, to a guy named Gus uh, Kinsworthy, mm-hmm. who um, is they call him an action sport person, like skiing, um, who is one of the also like big international people with the LGBTQ movement uh, in sports. So. It was just a way to have a conversation about um, the spaces where we're seeing more equality. Mm. Um, it's interesting that they chose sports because, you know, uh, I think Erin and I were talking about this. Uh, she interviewed uh, Jason Collins for a story she's going to do for The Undefeated. But we were saying that uh, why, why is sports, particularly the blood sports, football, basketball, men's, men's basketball, football, seems to be the last frontier of... of uh, of um, not not activism, but actually people acknowledging their sexuality. Uh, and you you played you played basketball uh, undergrad. Yeah, I just realized uh, I could never play with you. You call basketball a blood sport. It is. And a blood so sport. I don't. Well, I'm well, just wondering how he's playing the sport. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, well, it is a physical. It's a physical sport. It's a blood sport. sport. What is <laughs> not as opposed? It's, it's like golf too. Then huh? okay, both y'all are just in there just. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what would you? Well, okay, as opposed. It's a finesse sport. Really? Really? Finesse. That's how I play. It. All right, all right. Well, yeah. Yeah. you were a three-point shooter. You stayed on the outside. No, I was more of a, of a, of a Tim Duncan of a. Mm-hmm. That's of physical. A, you you bang down low. You bang some Kevin McHale post moves. Anyway, but miss miss. Fundamental. Yeah, but <laughs> Nikki Giovanni said you were a technical Negro. <laughs> um, anyway, no, but but uh, what I was saying in sport, like big time, big time, particularly men's basketball, mm-hmm. football. Um, that's not a, those are not sports you typically have have, have um, associated with the this more liberal athletes feeling free to come out. Um, it, it, that's my perception, but I think it's right. So why why is that? Um, it, well, let's be clear. Like we're talking about men's sports. Men, oh, because, yeah, you know, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. uh, women's sports, you, I mean, there's the assumption that everybody is gay. Well, it's almost the opposite. Whole different conversation. Right. Um, but uh, I think it's a, the team sport dynamic. Um, you're in a locker room with people. Like you're always with people. Um, I think that makes it harder because they're your family. So, and. Anybody coming out will tell you their biggest fear is losing their family. And so for athletes, when you're on a team, that is your family. And, and I think it's different with individual sports. And that, that notion was challenged for me today um, during the panel when Gus mentioned that he's an individual sport, a skier. It was hard for him to come out because skiers depend on sponsorships mm. more so than the team sports. Um, but I think that, like, some of the, the, the internal anguish that happens is because the fear of like losing your whole family. And that's why the big team sports, you don't see people coming out as much. Mm. You, you mentioned uh, Jason Collins was a, uh, I don't know what the, ter- the wor- remember the word that you used, but was a, a leader, you said, you know, in the movement. Yeah. Um, is that just because he came out? 
because he was active when he did. Mm -hmm. Like most mm -hmm. of the players actually did not, they came out after they were active. Okay. Um, or when they retired, when they retired. but mm -hmm. he was the first male athlete to come out actively in a big U.S. sport. You mentioned Stonewall. Uh, I was at Yankee Stadium about three days, four days ago. They did a, um, they had a plaque mm -hmm. and all that. But could you tell uh, to our millions of listeners about Stonewall? I mean, why is that important? I mean, you were, you were probably even born, right, with, when Stonewall came out. But could you tell us why, what Stonewall is and why that's this, this key date? So broad brushes, because it would be a whole history lesson, um, but it's a key date because that's the, one of the first times that LGBTQ people, specifically trans women, said no more. They were being harassed by the police, um, and they fought back, and it sparked, um, it sparked riots. Uh, and so you have activists like Marsha P. Johnson just basically saying no more. Um, and that's what we've seen in all aspects of the civil rights movement. There becomes a point where state-led violence is so much that people don't feel like they have a choice but to do anything but fight back. And so that's what Stonewall represents, um, the moment where people decided to fight back instead of uh, being um, treated with violence by, by the state. It was here in the village, right, mm -hmm. in, yes. in New York City. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, Ashlyn, um, talk about... Um, your experiences coming up, and you know, as a, as an athlete, uh, you were an athlete yourself, and 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 um, you know, of course, in athletics, that that's a subject that cannot be exposed. You know, so talk about how that and like any experiences, particular experiences, help you be able to inspire you to do the work that you do today. Um, yeah, I played women's basketball, and the ironic thing is, like. There are a lot of gay women in women's basketball, but it's something that you don't hear about. Like, think about how many out women's basketball coaches, head coaches that you know. Mm -hmm. like I, there's one right now, um, mm -hmm. and she's down in Vanderbilt. But it's not something that you see people really talking about. So that's the culture I grew up in, mm -hmm. where it's kind of like, well, we know that people are gay, but don't say anything about it mm -hmm. because you're going to mess it up for all of us. Um, you were at Furman, right? Yeah, Furman, I was, yeah, I was right, at Furman. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I played for Boo Williams when I was, uh, I grew up in Virginia, Catholic school, mm. played through Boo Williams. You always just kind of knew not to say anything or maybe you wouldn't get recruited. Um, and then something happened just my sophomore year. I was like, this is just kind of ridiculous. I'm seeing my, a lot of people around me just not really living their full life. Um, mm -hmm. And so I just didn't want to do it anymore, and I decided to come out. Uh, and it was funny because my teammates, I started doing things like showing up to, like, LGBT, like, rallies. And they still didn't get it. They were like, oh, Ashlyn's just civil rights-oriented. Like, oh, look, this is great. She's out there, like, doing these, these LGBT things. And I think I actually have to actively say, no, 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 I'm gay. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, oh, like, seriously. But, uh, but that's how how much like you see like the cognitive dissidents when it comes to women's athletics. Um, so from that, I went to Atlanta. Um, I was working at an HBCU in Atlanta. My boss found out that I was gay, and I didn't realize that it was legal to fire someone because they were gay. And I remember legal state le law? Still legal. Still legal. In, in some states? In, in Georgia. Georgia. In, in, in most states. Where'd you go? What, what school? What? Um, what, what I, I didn't go. I mean, not, not, but what, which age? Morehouse School of Medicine. I was working there. Oh, Morehouse. Yeah. Oh. Morehouse, it, Morehouse School of Medicine and Morehouse College, they do have separate boards. 
Um, but That's I had that deep. same response because wow. when this person told me, like, you have to end the day to sign this letter of resignation, I'm like, Psh, hmm. <laughs> I'm not signing anything. I'm like, this is illegal. And then I called um, several, I called the ACLU, I called Land Legal, and they let me know it was legal hmm. to do that. Um, and so I work with the ACLU to challenge the decision under Georgia or under Atlanta local law. Um, and it was a test case to show that the local law had no teeth. That there, yes, there was a law, but there's, there was no enforcement mechanism or no money to enforce um, the law. So after that, I decided to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And, um, in, in Georgia, right? In Georgia, U- yeah. Yeah, yeah. UGA, um, right? yeah, I went to UGA, went to law school there, um, worked for several civil rights organizations, and just started focusing on civil rights. Wow, amazing. Wow. You know, uh, it's funny, Ms. HBCU, uh, we have some fellows, Rodent fellows, who are, you know, obviously HBCU people. And one of the questions I ask them all the time is, because actually on Morehouse, there's a big, it's a big issue at Morehouse about uh, transgender, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if I want to, anyway, but I asked them, I don't know if it's stereotyping, I don't know if we had this conversation or not, are HBCUs and the black community in general, the stereotype is that we are much, as a community, we are much less tolerant. Of uh, of uh, sexual um, preferences that go outside mm-hmm. the norm, what it, it was more Morehouse uh, endemic of that, or or is that just another stereotype that's not necessarily true that you found? I, I think that's another stereotype that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, from my experience, people of color are not more homophobic or transphobic than any other group. Um, they're just certain people that have certain beliefs and they end up in certain positions of power. But I do think it is a, it's a stereotype that uh, is perpetuated for a reason. Um, and I don't think it's, it's very helpful to anybody. What do you, what do you mean by that? Perpetuated for a reason? Well, like we saw with marriage equality in California, like we, we heard that it's because people of color came out and voted against LGBTQ people. And there was, it wasn't substantiated. And so... I think it's the same thing when it comes to any type of like prejudice behavior. You want to divide communities, and so it's it's easy to say that this community is against that community, um, and so then you don't have to work with the community that makes you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, is there a racial divide even within the you know the community? The LGBT community? Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. See, because I mean that's that's you know, and it gets into you know, racism. Is that's such a deeply it's such a deep in this country that almost every single movement, whether it's the women's movement, whether the, the racism thing, just adds this thing that keeps us to our full potential, and it's the same thing. How does it manifest in in the LGBTQ community? Um, I can speak from like a legislative or national group perspective, and I really think a lot of it has to do with like how case law works. Mm-hmm. So people work in silos, and so let's say if I go and sit down and say. Mm-hmm. I want to do um, this thing on women at an LGBT group. And this is completely hypothetical. So or let's say if I go to a women's group and say I want to do an LGBT thing. Right. The women's group might say, oh, we don't do LGBT things. We do women's things. And mm. I'm thinking there are LGBT women. So it's kind of like this um, not working in an intersectional way, which means that some of the groups that get the most money might not necessarily be reinvesting it in some of the most vulnerable communities because they don't see it as their work. Mm. Yeah. Well, now, question for you about education. It's about educa- tolerance. That's what it's all about. And, 
And you have to start with young athletes because, you know, you have impressionable minds, like from grade school through middle school, like those kids, you know, because we're a team. You're supposed to be a team, like supposed to support each other no matter what, as long as you, you know, well, brothers and sisters in this. So how is, um, you know, and also now like professional leagues are not doing a good job supporting uh, athletes that, that, you know, LGBTQ athletes. So talk about how, how it, How's your organization and other organizations looking to enlighten young athletes, student athletes, to be able to really be toler- tolerant of each other and hence bringing more of a support towards each other? So two things there. One, it's uh, usually not the, the youth. The youth are very flexible. Oh. It's the parents. Mm. It's the parents uh, and the coaches. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah, educating the coaches too. Yeah, coaches. Right, 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 um, right. So you've got like I work with uh, the NBA <clears throat> on their coaches forum. So mm-hmm. it's to train the coaches so they can create safer environments for players. Um, but that is that's kind of like how people operate now is they'll try to train the administrators or the coaches. I would mm-hmm. love to see a movement to actually empower younger athletes to be able to advocate for their own social justice issues mm-hmm. instead of having to go through an intermediary that might not have their best interests in mind. Right. But how do we empower these young athletes to, like, do you want to be a community organizer? Here are the skills on how to do that. Like, um, do you want to do social justice work? Here are the skills on how to do that. Um, do you want to run for office? Like, here's how you do that. But using some of these, like, team systems to build power in that way, I think would be it would be great. Right now, no one's doing it. Um, mm. It is the ultimate goal of what my organization wants to do. Uh, but you have to work through the leagues to do it. So what, ki- what kind of work have you been doing, you know, with the leagues? I, you know, you work with the WNBA, the NBA, as you said. What, you know, what kind of steps have you been able to take that you feel like are making or could make progress? And what, what have you received pushback from? So each league is different. Um, I would have to say one of the most progressive is the NBA. So... And I don't want to start with who's the, the <laughs> least progressive right. league, but, like, everybody is always on a different level. Some people that haven't even bought in. Like, the only reason you're brought in is because something went horribly wrong. Right. That shouldn't have gone wrong, like, today. Right. Um, and so it's basic language training. Um, but when you get someone who's at their best, and I would say right now the NBA is probably furthest along, they um, have programs, junior NBA programs, where they try to figure out – how do they actually build character for their young athletes? Um, and so one of the things I do with them is, like, how do we reframe this program to be more impactful? So the leagues who are actually looking at impact over looking at uh, mitigating litigation mm-hmm. are the ones who are more progressive. But you got to start with good policies. Like I tell people, like, great practices come from sound policies. So see what your policies say. Like, do you have a fan code of conduct? A lot of the homophobia that happens does not happen on the court. Again, that's blaming athletes. It's happening in the stands. Right. So, and then are you training people? Like, in sports, we know training equals muscle memory. But when it comes to training for, like, any of the DNI work, it'll be one training a year maybe. And so just getting people used to using that muscle. Can you explain what DNI is? Oh, sorry, uh, diversity inclusion. So there'll be one diversity inclusion training a year, if any, and then they'll just go about whatever it is they're doing. But like in corporations, same yeah, thing. Yeah, right. That's a muscle you Maybe have to... Maybe bi- biannually or something. Maybe. Yeah. They'll, <laughs> pick, they'll pick whatever identity topic it is, mm-hmm. and that's what you get every five years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they, you know, so it's just trying to convince people that you, you'd save money and save time if you just trained more or cross-trained. So, and it's interesting. It's easier to do it with uh, some sports, but some sports don't feel it's necessary. What's the difference in the NBA and the WNBA? Uh, in terms of, ch- because I'm looking at it, men and women, I mean, there's not, I mean, we're all hum- human beings. We all, we all have the same issues to some extent, but you, but you see it, there's a total difference between not the perception and the reality in terms of, you know, people coming out in one league and not in the other league. But I would assume it probably is close percentage wise. It should, it should be closer percentage wise. I would guess, am I wrong? I'm not, I plead the fifth, I don't, <laughs> um, the, you mean like the difference in with visibility of people out or the difference in how they engage in social justice work? Both. Oh, um, visi- or or let's, yeah. let's, talk, let's talk about visibility in terms of people out, because that that, that's yeah. what I was really getting at. So, um, with, so there's gender expression, mm-hmm. like how do people express themselves gender-wise regardless of what their sexual orientation is, so... How do they look? What do they wear? As opposed to who they love and who they date. When it comes to athletics, like you're supposed to be more aggressive. Like there are just certain things that are we consider more masculine qualities. So I do think it creates a skewed view that there are more gay people in the WNBA just because of gender expression right. and the nature of the sport. Um, but you do see more out people too, and I think it's like because sometimes you just you can't hide. Mm-hmm. And when you're playing these male sports where you're being hyper-masculine, it is easier for people just to assume that you're not gay. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that creates a skewed view. And when it comes to social justice work, I, women always are at the forefront of doing social justice work. And I right. think especially women of color, because when things go down and things go wrong, women of color are the first ones to feel the brunt of it. So, so on that note, Ashland, um, so... I feel like we can all name quite a few women who are out in WNBA. I can only think of Jason Collins, who's out NBA, and Michael Sam, and he's yeah. So and John Amache was retired, retired at the time, yeah. But so I'm like, if if so, we have all these, you know, NBA we're, pride, we're, we're, you know, all mm-hmm. these pride events, and like, you know, we ever, you see all these rainbows everywhere. But do you think it's the league has actually made it safer for ath- male athletes to come out? And why do you think they have there haven't been more? Or they just have not no gay people and well, sometimes I think we forget that athletes are dynamic people who exist in the world, right. not just on the field of play. And so regardless of how safe the league makes it, these people still have to live in their state, in their cities, they still have their families. And most people in this country are not they don't have LGBT protections. And so I think that the leagues can and should do more to push more like great state and local laws. Like if you really want people to to feel free and be out, then we need to do more with state and local laws because that that's what frees people up. On the court, most of these athletes are just really focused um, and they want to play their hardest, but when the, the game ends, they step out into the real world, which isn't always safe for LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think, another loaded question, but do you think that it is that it is more accepted, even just in society, uh, for for a woman to be gay than for a man to be gay? Absolutely. 
Yeah. And I mean, that goes into uh, the whole, whole different conversation right. on sexism right. um, and quality, masculine qualities versus feminine qualities. But I do think it is a lot harder for, for men to be gay. And it's, I think, I don't want to compare mm-hmm. which is harder, right. but for bi men, all numbers say that anybody who falls in the bi category are at higher risk for most, like, for most, um, uh, just bad things. Like happen. retaliation or, or yeah, something. Yeah, or mm. discrimination. Mm-hmm. Even in the LGBT community, any bi people are discriminated against. Why is that? I don't know. It's, I think you're not here nor there until both sides. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. Hated by both. Yeah. So, so, I mean, if that's the case, that was good. If that's the case, I mean, we talk about how far we've come and all that. How far have we come? I mean, if there's still this, you know, we talk about sports. I mean, it seems like it's really the the last frontier, you know, that in terms of sexual expression, people being comfortable. It seems like that's like almost Vietnam, that that just hadn't happened. And it's, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen in the foreseeable future. I think we've we've come a long way. And I think if we get sponsors on board, Sponsors are important. Like athletes have to make a living too, um, so it's not just the policies. It's like you got to get your stadiums on board, your sponsors on board. But now we can at least have the conversation. Fifteen years ago, right. ten years ago, we wouldn't even have the conversation because people would say there's no such thing as a gay male athlete. But now we know that's not true, and so it at least allows us to have these conversations. But we know this from like the Black Civil Rights Movement. Change is slow. We haven't even gotten half the promises met. Right. And so I think this generation expect things, expects things to move quickly. And a lot of people who are running the movement don't realize, like, how long <laughs> it takes to achieve anything close to equality. I just want to ask about Nike. I, I only heard this. Is, does Nike have an LGBTQ line that's out now? Yeah, they, yeah. And For a while. For a while. Five years. Really? So, yeah. And I didn't even know that. Really? Be true? You yeah. probably didn't even know you were wearing it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, but that's probably a good thing, right? That's probably what they would what you would want. Oh, that, oh I don't or know no. to tell this story. Um, <laughs> okay. I was there when the Be True line launched. Uh, they started an LGBT sports coalition. Um, and Be True, this is, I heard this secondhand, but Be True belonged to another internal line at Nike. But they didn't know, and I think it was um, like a black civil rights line. Um, and so when they had did mm. the Be True line, the other line was gone, so they could use Be True. But that line actually pays for, um, they give donate a certain amount of money to LGBT sports, which is great. And they were the first major uh, company to do an LGBT sports line. So now you see, I mean, they own Converse, so Converse does one, Adidas does one, Under Armour does one. and but they were the first ones to actually do it. One more thing with Nike, they also have um, a, one of the first like trans commercials too with Chris Mosher, and that came out this mm. year where the commercial they released was, was amazing. It had Brittany Griner, I think it had Brittany Griner, it had uh, Deladon and Chris Mosher, and it talked about basically how no one can get there alone. Mm. And it's, I mean, they have great messaging, and they featured a trans athlete, which is pretty cool. Mm. So when you're referring to athletes, especially we're all journalists in this room, I've always thought to my, I was always, always told you, men are gay, women are lesbians, and queer is, you need, they, 
I'd only use queer if someone called themselves queer. Where, where, like, can you help break that down? <laughs> what what should we, how should we be referring okay. to people? Um, I still am of the line, like, language matters. Language definitely matters. But people, I think, will defer to how you treat them. If you make a mistake in the language, people will give you grace if you treat them well. So I make mistakes all the time when I talk about people who are gender nonconforming or people who are trans. But I think it's a lot about, like, how you treat people. So that's step one. And I tell people, no slurs. Let's just mm-hmm. don't use any slurs. If you stay away queer, from that, that would be great. Queer used to be a slur. Queer used to be a slur. Yeah, so that's, I guess, with reclaiming it, it did have a, before it became a slur, I guess it meant something else. But where I would fall on that is let people self-identify. So I usually say gay or or bi or whatever or whatever someone tells me. If they say queer, I will say queer. But you otherwise... Won't, you, won't, you won't introduce it. No. Mm. Yeah. Because it's, being queer is... is conceptually different than being gay or lesbian. Yeah, which is bizarre because like I said, back in the, not too long ago, you would say queer as a coverall to everything. If you're a guy and you say, yeah, you're queer, which means you're gay or you're whatever. It's bad. Now that's part of the LBQ. I mean, now, but I guess Aaron's question is exactly what is it? See, in your, even if we, y'all figured this one out, it's changing so right. much right. that like in the last survey, um, that my last organization put out, most LGBT youth do not identify as LGBT. And they're pan or just other things. So probably in like 10 years, terminology is gonna change anyway. Mm-hmm. I think it's only gonna matter for, at least in the legal context, like mm-hmm. sexual orientation, gender identity, but everything else, it's just gonna be labeled, yeah. Mm-hmm. Our guest has been Ashton Johnson. She's the founder and president of the Inclusion Playbook, uh, which is a sports and justice uh, project. She's in New York. Uh, she was in New York to celebrate um, Pride, uh, the end of Pride Month. But also, this is also the end of Pride. Well, it's not the end of Pride year, right? Where it's all year. Pride, I'm proud all year. I've <laughs> been proud all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, Ashley, thank you so much for being here uh, again, uh, kind of enlightening us. And um, thank you so much. It's great having you, as usual. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you, Ashley. Such a pleasure. It's cool. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be back with yet another attorney. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with another attorney, uh, Don Jackson, who's an attorney uh, specializing in sports and NCAA student student athletes' rights, which actually Ashlyn Johnson uh, is one of your specialties also. So we'll be back shortly. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Check it out. Welcome back, everybody, to yet another version of Bill Roden on sports here in the bowels of uh, Manhattan with uh, great Jamal Murphy and Nabate Isles. And also uh, our guest from the last segment, Ashlyn Johnson, uh, has decided to stick around for a segment because she's very interested in this next subject, uh, which is student-athletes' uh, uh, rights. Uh, could be an oxymoron. 
uh, 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 we, we got a, a great guest, uh, Don Jackson, who was a specialist in, uh, in sports law. Uh, he's a sports attorney. He teaches at the Cumberland School of Law at Stanford University, and he's the founder of the um, sports group. Uh, hey, uh, uh, Don, thank you very much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Hey, uh, there, there's so much to dig in, and I'll let uh, uh, Jamal Murphy bring you up because, you know, Jamal has uh, he's written some stuff for The Undefeated uh, about um, uh, the recent scandal of uh, the, the sneaker scandal where most of the people being busted were, were black, you know, assistant coaches. But, Jamal, why don't you um, – there, there was a recent ruling uh, that we were talking about off, off mic. Why don't you – Talk about what happened, and let's let's ask uh, Don to comment on it. Well, uh, Don and I had a conversation, I think, last month in May, and it, it was around uh, the fact that the NCAA had had uh, established or created a working group or committee to look into whether uh, they would uh, they would all of a sudden allow players uh, to profit off of their likeness, uh, their image, and their name, and this was. You know, this was prior to the news that came out a couple of days ago that that California had, you know, was uh, in the process of of uh, making it legal for players in that state to do so. So it's so I'm glad to have Don on and get his opinion on that. When I when we spoke in May, um, Don, you remember you were very skeptical about the NCAA, uh, their you know whether they were being genuine about wanting you know really addressing the issue of allowing kids to profit um, off their name. So what's your what's your take? You know, after we've seen that what California is planning to do, and then seeing the NCAA's reaction to it, sending a letter uh, to the lawmakers threatening um, them that if they do this, that they would uh, ban ca- all California schools from participating in NCAA championships. First, first, I don't I don't think that that was anything other than other than a, than a threat. I mean, I, UCLA, Cal Berkeley, the other schools out there, they're too much a part of the NCAA membership structure for them to ever actually ever actually ban them from from championship competition. USC, but but at the same time, the, the concerns that, that that I expressed to you a month ago when when this name likeness and, and image committee was was formed was that. My real concern was that that was really nothing more than than sort of a cynical way of claiming that they were going to address the problem. The composition of that committee really did not include enough real stakeholders in the process. There are only three student athletes on that committee, one division one, one division two, one division three. The other members of the committee included. Uh, included uh, people who uh, athletic administrators from low-level conferences uh, and, and low Division One and even Division Two conferences. They weren't real stakeholders in the issues relative to name, likeness, and image rights of athletes. If, if there was a, there's a time, there's a real need for real serious, thoughtful reconsideration of the whole concept of amateurism. Excluding Power Five revenue sport athletes, student athletes in football and basketball at the Power Five level that really have uh, a real expectation of, of, of earn, a reasonable expectation of earning income from their name, likeness, and image image rights. 
by excluding them from this committee, it really showed that the NCA may not be so interested in actually coming up with a workable way of allowing them to, to, to benefit from, from, from their name likeness and image rights. The, the correspondence from several days ago, you've got similar legislation in, 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 in the state of Washington. You've got similar legislation that, that's going that's, that, uh, going through the system in North Carolina. I, I, I think we're heading towards a, a likely showdown between the NCA and, and not just the state of California, but a number of other states over this issue, and there's even been some discussion on the congressional level about having uh, some more legislation at the congressional level, although that likely wouldn't pass a, uh, a Republican-dominated Senate. Uh, I think the correspondence from two days ago, I think it's a good step in the, I think it's a step in the right direction because I think it's going to force some real hard debate over this issue over the next several years, and quite possibly, uh, quite possibly, we'll be right back uh, in the federal court system over over the NCAA's efforts to, to restrict states and even universities from uh, states and, and universities from even for the student athletes. He's right. How did uh, the uh, we were talking about the O'Bannon case? Uh, what did that do? I mean, what I, I I know if you don't follow as closely, if you go, they, they O'Bannon won his case. That uh, kind of settled everything. What did the O'Bannon case settle? It, it, it really opened the door to, to this issue as to whether or not name likeness and image rights, what, what athletes should be should be able to profit from it. Now, the reality of the matter is, from a practical standpoint, the real outgrowth of that O'Bannon case was the fact that, that it forced the NCAAs and conferences into into a position where they had had to afford student athletes. Uh, a, a new set of rights, and, and, and one of the outgrowths of that was, was cost of attendance stipends that were paid. And, and frankly, that case essentially said that, that, that student-athletes should be in a position to, to benefit from exactly what, what the California, California legislation is attempting to afford them the right to benefit from. But you know, other than other than sort of residual benefits that were offered by the NCA, there still has not been the floodgates have not opened as a result of the O'Bannon case uh, to student athletes to, to to benefit off their name likeness and image rights, and 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 universities as a result of the O'Bannon case and then this Austin case, uh, the recent Austin case as well, they've, they've still been resistant to to a to essentially open the gates up to allow student-athletes to, to benefit in, in any way from from, uh, from either name likeness and image rights or even uh, a thoughtful reconsideration of this whole concept of amateurism. I mean, the bottom line is the NCAA's concept of amateurism is, is, is ancient. It was based on a 1920s, 30s, Olympic concept, uh, Olympic uh, definition of amateurism, and even the Olympics have, have changed their view of amateurism. So all of these cases are slowly pushing uh, things in, in the right direction. And I think over the next three to four, three to four years, there will be some kind of workable system in place to allow student-athletes to benefit from, from name likeness and image, image rights 
if not uh, direct payments from universities. Don, this is on the Batals. I have a question about professional athletes that, because all professional athletes are, were student athletes basically over the past eight, thirteen years or so. You know, after after the one and done rule was um, was implemented. And of course, in the in the NFL, NFL athletes obviously, you know, they had to play three years you know, in the amateurs in college and everything, but. Have professional athletes um, come out to to really be able to lend their support in this change? You know, because they have names, they have like they have an image out there that can help be able to to circumvent what's going on. Are professional athletes being summoned to do it, or have pro athletes stepped forward to do it, and we just don't know about it? There have been some individual instances where where some some professional athletes have individually said, "Yeah, there should be." Student athletes should be able to benefit from from should be able to benefit from their athletic ability quite. But generally speaking, the the, the Major League Baseball Players Association, NFLPA, National Basketball Players Association, they've taken a hands off approach to it. Even even you know several years ago when you had the Northwestern University uh, unionization case, our, you know un, unfortunately the NFLPA, Major League Baseball. Players Association, uh, uh, NB, National Basketball Players Association, they all took a hands-off approach to, to, to those cases, and I'm not sure that I fully understood why because mm-hmm. the, the, the reality of the matter is not all, but quite a number, quite a number uh, of high-level collegiate athletes are going to wind up being members of these organizations. And, uh, frankly, I, anytime I see... Uh, an effort to unionize, whether it's at, at an auto, automobile manufacturing uh, plant or in, in, in collegiate sports. I'm generally in favor of it, but I've been a little bit disappointed by, by the hands-off approach that, that athletes, especially high-level athletes, uh, those that, that when they were in college quite realistically could have, could have on an open market uh, demanded demanded marketing revenue of, of in excess of 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 maybe ten eight to ten million dollars I would say for for extremely high level athletes I've been some been disappointed about the fact that they've take, taken a very hands off approach. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think of uh, what do you make of um, I, I was trying to think of the uh, this uh, Zion Williamson who comes into the NCA with like millions of Twitter followers almost an entity unto itself, and they're more like that. And it's almost it's beyond the NCAA's reach, in other words. It's almost like you're, you're now getting ready to get a group of athletes, young athletes who could have their own thing that's kind of outside the reach of NCAA. They got their own marketing. They can market themselves. You know, where, where, where does this – I mean, I find it kind of fascinating that – you're now having a group of very savvy young athletes with their own social media following. Is it possible that these kids will, they could do their own marketing? They, could, they don't even have to worry about likeness because they control their own likeness. Well, bylaw 12, MTA bylaw 12 is the amateurism bylaw. And, and it deals specifically with a, a, a situation like a Zion Waves. I mean, let's face it. On the day that you walk onto 
Duke campus, he had significant e- economic value. And, and there are always players every year that walk off of high school campuses, walk on the college campuses, and, and essentially on the day that they walk onto these campuses, with or without the, the marketing benefits that go along with college athletics, they, they have significant economic value. Quite a number of them have, have economic value at the high school level. LeBron James was one. NCAA legislation, amateurism legislation, is meant to essentially control the athlete's ability to, to benefit off of his own athletic ability. I, you know, for example, you don't even have due process rights or property interests to your athletic participation. I'm not going to sit here and say that a third-string defensive back or, or third-string cornerback or walk-on defensive back on anyone's campus or Division Two or Division Three or even the Power Five level should have any kind of due process protection for his athletic participation or, or athletic eligibility because it's quite likely that he has no reasonable expectation of future earnings based upon that. But for Zion Williamson, that with or without Duke University had significant economic value, he should receive super legal protection for his athletic participation. So you- Over the years... I've represented several dozen McDonald's All-American players going all the way back to, to Marvin Stone, who signed at the University of Kentucky and then transferred to Louisville. And, and, and quite a number of them have been in these amateurism certifications and amateurism investigations once they get to college. And these are young people that could walk off of a campus and earn hundreds of thousands and quite possibly in some instances millions of dollars in, in, in marketing revenue in Louisville, in Durham, North Carolina, in New York City, in California, but they are sometimes declared declared ineligible based on based on uh, bylaw 12 for having received a, a, a ride from a, a ride by the AU coach on on an unofficial visit, or because of the fact that someone provided basketball training for them without without them being paid because of the fact that someone provided free ACT test prep because, without without having received the payment any any benefit afforded to to a prospective student athlete or a student athlete whether it's based on that on his athletic uh, athletic ability or not based on bylaw 12 the NCA enforcement staff the eligibility center investigators are going to perceive that as being a benefit that they receive because of the fact that they were a talented athlete. When Cam Newton was at Auburn University, Cam Newton probably had an economic value during that one year at Auburn, a marketing value during one year at Auburn of between ten and fifty million dollars. Mm. Hey, hey, and, and the and the residual value to Auburn University for him for his having won a national championship over a ten year period may very well have been a hundred million dollars. But it was it would have been a violation for him to receive uh, to receive a free meal from an agent or a free meal from anyone, and that there's something counterintuitive and frankly a little bit troubling about that. With the NCAA, they are a nonprofit, right? They're they're a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. How are they allowed to actually make these comments or criticisms about a piece of active legislation? Yeah, uh, well, frankly, 
generally speaking, they're not supposed to be because they're not supposed to be involved. In, they're not supposed to be involved in any kind of political activity. Yeah. But the reality of the matter is they have lobbyists. They, 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 they've attempted to intervene in, in even instances where, where you've had congressional people on the congressional level several years ago. I think his name was, was Cohen from, from Memphis uh, proposed hearings on, on due process issues involving NCA legislation. NCA legislation. They always interfere in legislative and legislative uh, actions, both on the state and congressional level, uh, and, and and frankly, this whole idea of uh, of the NCA being a nonprofit in 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 essentially what's arisen to a, to a billion dollar a multi billion dollar industry in right. college basketball and football is is sometimes a little bit hard for me to for, for me to accept. Yeah, this just seems like in at least the last five years, the NCAA, I don't know if it's a sign that maybe they're worried about their power slipping, but to send this public letter to try to stop a piece of legislation seems like a lot. So there are instances where the NCAA won't let you have a tournament there, and it's if you have, uh, what is it, you fly the Confederate flag? and right. let me, Yeah, it's confide, fly, fly the Confederate flag or a racist mascot. <laughs> Are they saying that the equivalent would be for California that if they allowed the players to actually make money off of their own images, it could do that type of damage? Like one of the one of their claims is that by allowing the state of California to do that, that there would be a competitive advantage to California schools as it relates to other universities around the country. Let, let, let's face it. One of the issues with with NCA legislation, with NCA enforcement, is the fact that you have mid major and low major universities that that attempt to impose their will on on power five universities. Now, I'll give you a very good example. There's no reason in 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 my home state, in the state of Alabama, there's no reason why mid major universities or low major Division one universities in the state of Alabama should be able to dictate to Auburn University, and I'm not an Auburn or Alabama fan, but should be able to dictate anything about uh, about amateurism issues to universities that have $150 million, 100 to $150 million athletic department budgets. The, the universities at the lower end with 5 10 15 $20 million budgets have have as much sway on these issues as as universities like UCLA with a $280 million endorsement deal with Under Armour, and they shouldn't. Because the reality of the matter is most universities at that Power 5 level would have no problem with their athletes receiving, receiving benefits based on their athletic ability. But it's the schools at the at the lower to mid level um, that that express the most concern, and it's those schools that may have been the impetus behind that behind that that letter from Roger Emmert. Right, and you and you, had a, you when we talked um, about a month ago, you kind of exp, you explained that to me uh, as you know if you have a if you have a, a, a lower level school, low low division one, division two, division three. Um, and you have a player that's allowed to 
a profit, say they get a big-time player. One sneaks through the cracks, they have a big-time player. And he's allowed to profit from his own likeness and image. He would actually be competing with the school sponsors. So they, that is exactly correct. Right? So, so they have... There's a reason why they don't want that to happen, why they'd be against this this kind of legislation, because it would t- it would actually take money away from those smaller schools. No, no question. If, if you have a player at, and I'll call it a directional school, middle, southeastern, wherever state university, <laughs> middle, wherever state university, a Division two school, if, if you're fortunate enough to have an extremely high-level athlete at that school, I mean, these are schools that are operating with a different revenue model than Power Five universities. They don't have athletic donors that are contributing millions of dollars to their athletic foundations. They don't have an SEC network or an ACC network or a Big Ten network to supplement their athletic department budgets at at the end of every year. So as a result of it, they've got a different revenue revenue production model. Well, for a school like that, if if they have a student athlete that 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 is arises to a level where he does have actual economic value, that athlete can then go out into a community in in a true free market system and generate revenue from local businesses, local small businesses, local banks, local bakeries, local local grocery store chains. Well, these are the exact same people that are buying our program sponsorships for college football in these communities. These are the same people that are, buy, that, that are buying ad, ad, advertisement in, 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 in media guides, in, in programs, buying stadium advertisement, uh, putting money into the athletic foundation. So schools on that level have a real concern about being in direct competition with the student-athletes on their campus. And because of the fact that this, you don't have true – there is no unionization at this point of college athletes. So as a result of that, you don't have collective bargaining between, between college athletes and conferences, college athletes and the NCAA, college athletes and even their own universities. And as a result of that – as a result of that, the the true stakeholders in this debate are not being adequately represented at 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 the negotiating table, even with this uh, committee that was appointed several weeks ago. We are where we are right now uh, with the California uh, lawmakers uh, seemingly close to you know to creating a law or or, or making it legal for players to profit. Where where do you see this going in the in the not too distant future? What you you know? I, I see this if, if over the last several years there have been a number of, number of there's obviously uh, the O'Bannon case, the Alford case. There've been a number of cases that that have made their way through the federal court system over the last several years, and that's what those cases have gotten us to this point. Over the next several years, I anticipate that there will be other cases uh, involving involving transfer restrictions, in, in, involving name, likeness, and image rights, involving, uh, involving the NCAA's efforts to, to extend by law 12 and this whole concept of amateurism. Those cases, I believe, over the next several years will inch us further along towards 
uh, if not direct payments by universities, uh, at least something fairly close to a to a free market system in, in name likeness, name likeness, and, and, and image rights. Because the reality of the matter is, even right down to this basketball commission from a year ago, a lot of the actions that have been proposed and taken by the NCAA, even in response to the O'Bannon case, are textbook violations of Section 1 of the Sherman Act. And, and essentially now they are, they are attempting to violate the Sherman Act and maintain, uh, maintain control by the NCAA over, quote, amateur basketball. They're attempting to do that in plain sight, even to a point of pushing AAU basketball and shoe companies out of summer basketball altogether. You can't do that. That violates that violates, forget about NCAA legislation. That violates federal law. I mean, that's that that's the NCAA using monopoly power in the collegiate sports market to essentially shut down AAU basketball to lock out uh, basketball to shoe companies from from summer basketball, and they're attempting to exert illegal control over over collegiate sports. All of these cases are going to wind up in court in courts all over the country over the next over the next several years. Mm. Wow. Um, now, on another note, I saw in your bio that you worked with them, um, because we, we have a, a jazz theme here on our show, jazz and music, not just for sports, because, you know, Bill's, Bill's a huge music fan, myself and Jamal. I mean, I'm a professional musician myself, and Jamal is a major music fan. So I saw that you worked with Waymond Tisdale. Waymond Tisdale. I knew you said When you said jazz, I knew that you were, that you were talking about Wayman, during the summer of '96, yes, I, I actually co-promoted uh, co-promoted a part of a concert tour uh, from roughly June June or July of 1996, all the way up through roughly around the time that he reported to camp. I, I promoted uh, co-promoted uh, a summer concert tour. We took them all down. I, my memory serves me. Maybe we picked them, picked them up in either Philadelphia, DC, and took them all the way down through through the through Richmond, Virginia, and all the way down through the South. He did. He actually did a con, did a show here. Uh, I'm in Montgomery today. He actually did a show in September of 1996 uh, here in Montgomery. That was one. He that was one of the most enjoyable experiences in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just because of the fact that that he was involved in sports, I got to got to know him extraordinarily well, but also because of the fact that I was a, that I'm a huge jazz fan, and, mm-hmm. and he at that time he, he was that was not too long after the after the, around the release of a power forward, and he was one of the most talented guys that I've ever, and I promoted a number a number of musicians, both jazz and R and B R and B. He was one of the most talented and genuinely decent people that I've ever met. Yes, indeed. I mean, he's a legitimate musician for sure, you know, because we have some other athletes, though, you can't really say the same thing for, you know. But (laughs) (laughs) We did a show, and this is an aside, we did a show in in Montgomery, and and the show was scheduled to start at around 8 or 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night. There was in in a club in Montgomery, and I, you know, we had the rider, 
had the rider on the show, and we needed a particular type of adapter or something for 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 for, uh, for his guitar. And whatever we needed, it was my responsibility to make sure it was there. And, and I didn't, and, and I and I overlooked it. So the show was about an hour, hour and a half late. No, it was actually longer than that. So maybe an hour, hour and a half after the show was supposed to start, he still had to perform. Mm-hmm. And 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 I remember him coming out. I mean, he had been in Montgomery for several days, and, and he was preparing to go back to camp for basketball. And he actually worked out and lifted weights and worked out at a YMCA right across the street from my house <laughs> when he was here. And I remember him coming out on stage and and saying, you know, we're gonna. I'm gonna perform tonight. Don't nobody go home. I'm gonna perform tonight. You know, even if it means that I don't start playing until one o'clock in the morning because of Don, and, and it's Don Jackson's fault, I'm gonna perform tonight. <laughs> he said, "I'm gonna perform tonight, so don't anybody go anywhere." He was he was one of the most decent, talented people, and talented both on the basketball court. And with the bass coach, he's one of the most talented people I've ever met, and wow. one of the most decent. Yes, indeed. God rest his soul. Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, no question. That, that was that was that was a you know I mean that, his, his death was was a, that was a really sad time. Um, Don, man, really appreciate you you joining us. You know, we'd love to have you on in the future. We know this, uh, all the litigation that you that you referenced. This, this stuff is not going to stop. This name likeness issue is not going to go anywhere. Um, it's only going to increase. Uh, so we'd love to uh, have you on in the future and talk about things as uh, as they progress. We really appreciate you joining us, though. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Love to come back. Thank you, sir. All right. Take care. Listen, we'd like to uh, thank uh, our guest. Ashlyn Johnson and Don Jackson, uh, great conversations, great conversations. And uh, we will see, and I, of course, I'd like to thank my tremendous co-host, the great Jamal Murphy, Nabate Isles, congratulations, my brother. Thank you. Thank you, you. Know, wishing you decades and decades and decades of happiness and decades after that <laughs> of happiness. And uh, we will see everybody else uh, next week on another version of Bill Roden on Sports. So God bless. to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.